Getting greeted by Batty here. It's an honor. Just walking home, and I was thinking, uh, you know, we just can't resist the urge to project our, our current selves onto history. And I've talked a lot about that on here, like the way we project ourselves onto future history, like the way that future generations will look back on us, on us now and how that's very narcissistic and short-sighted and also a waste of time. Like you should do what's right right now because that's what's right for right now. You know, don't just think about posterity. Because chances are, like, if, if you truly feel something is right right now, like, you know it. Not because someone else told you, because you just intuitively know. What's good for right now is probably, like, and I'm not talking about, like, prosperity. I'm just talking about, like, the basics. Chances are it's, it's going to reflect better in history, but you shouldn't even be thinking of that. And, you know, when I've talked about this before, it's been the whole, like, right side of history thing where just the contemporary narcissism of that, like, thinking that, like, in the same way you look back on virtually everyone, it seems like, it seems like if you have a certain philosophy, you look back at everybody throughout history and condemn them, which is really crazy. Like, think about that. Like, think about, like, certain sociopolitical views involve looking back unfavorably on everybody except for you. Everybody was dumber than you. Everybody was more misguided than you. They were more hateful. They were more savage. And sometimes they were. But just to think of everything throughout history through that lens is, is a crazy way of thinking. But then to turn around and think that, you know, anybody in the future is going to look back on you any more favorably is, is really a crazy idea. You know, things can change so quickly, like weird ideas can get in people's head or the right ideas. Like future people might be way more enlightened than we are and look at back at the things that we thought were right and well and be like, just can you believe those people? We do it with everything. We're very judgmental of history. And the funny part about that, what I was going to get into, what got me thinking is that we also assume that, you know, like, like we see history through our own contemporary narcissism too. It's not just the future. It's not just that we think the future is going to shine on us. They're going to celebrate us. Oh, look, at those were the first people to figure it out. Those were the first people to just figure it out. Good for them. Oh, they're amazing. We're going to make statues of you. Future, the future people are going to make statues of me. But we do it with the past as well where we're like, um... You know, my understanding of this thing that I've only read about, this thing that I've only heard from select sources, something that I probably haven't even studied into, like I'm going to project all kinds of, I'm going to project myself onto that. Because it's not just negative things. It's not just that we look back at everybody negatively. It's also like the things that we choose to the way that we designate certain things throughout history, good and bad. Like we see things in the past as good or bad based on our current understanding of good and bad. It's obvious, you know, I'm not saying anything people don't know. Um, but it just shows you this, this very, you know, temporary, contemporary narcissism too. Um, just one second here. Okay, I'm back here. Yeah, just the idea that we project our current selves onto history and we act like, you know, 
we, what I'm what I'm getting at is like we we act like if we were there back then, we would do what we think we should do now. We have no idea what it would have been like to be there, especially with way less information. Because that's the other funny part is like we also imagine that like let's say we lived during the 1960s, during the civil rights era. We're like, oh well, I obviously would be on the side of civil rights. I just know it. I just know. Because I think that that's right, right now, because like I'm currently a fan of what took place there, like I know that I would be, I, I totally know that I would be rooting for more civil rights. But it's like you have no idea what it would be like. And we also assume that we would have the same amount of information we have on it that we have now. Because like you can see, like we don't even know what's going on with events happening during a time of mass information. Like, we don't even know what's going on. We have a hard time. We have too much information. We don't know how to separate it. We don't trust the news because they're biased. So it's like, even with all this information, video, audio, just total access to everything, even with that, you know, we, we massively struggle to make proper sense of it. Few of anybody's able to. And so you go back to a time where there was even less information you had to rely way more on what was happening around you and just the vague anecdotes you got through the newspaper and maybe TV, but you weren't getting a constant stream of information. Ideas weren't traveling nearly as fast. And because you can look back now and say like, oh, well, I obviously agree with Martin Luther King Jr. I would have been on his side. Like, you think that that would have been you then. Like, you think that you are way more solid than you are. You don't realize, you know, how fleeting and illusory you actually are. So you have, you have a tendency to think like, oh, well, you know, I, I obviously would have done the right thing because today in 2022, I know what the right thing is. And it's the same form of thinking that says like, obviously people in the future are going to agree with me. As if that matters, as if you need their approval. To me, like wanting the approval of future people is the same thing as like people invoking the dead to try to convince somebody to do something. Oh my God, if your mother knew you thought that, she'd be rolling in her grave. Oh my God, if your, if your grandpappy knew that you voted for Donald Trumpsfeld, he'd be rolling in his grave. You know? We invoke the dead and the as-of-yet-unborn in the same way to, like, judge us now. The dead people are judging you. You know, the, the future people are judging you. And we know they will. That's the funny thing. Like, it's not that that's completely wrong, because in the same way we do it. Like, we don't, we're not in a position to judge the future people, but based on how hard we judge the past people... It's a given people will judge us. We just think we know how they will judge us. That's the problem. The problem isn't that we, th we think people in the future are going to judge us, because we know that happens. We know it's what people do. It's that we think we know, like, the formula they'll, they'll use. And we think we've figured it out now. And I, I'm not including myself in this. I'm guilty of a lot of things. I'm not guilty of this. But, yeah, people think that. It's like, oh, you know, we figured out the formula of what's good and right in 2022 and I'm glad it's never going to change and I'm glad the future people who are also going to be good and right I'm glad that they're going to use our formula it's like crazy 
It's like giving a, an acceptance speech for an award that you haven't gotten yet and you're never going to see. But that's where all like the right side of history stuff comes. And, you know, to be fair, even though that came largely from the left, the whole right side of history, that was just the worst. The second I heard it many years ago, I was like, oh, we're all in for we're in for a rough ride here. Once I saw that start picking up steam, I was like, oh, this is going to be a rough ride for a little bit. But, you know, the right does that in its own way as well. You know, this isn't some both sides argument, but people in general do it. Because there is kind of a right wing tendency to be like, well, you know, your future grandchildren are going to thank you. You know, there's this idea that like you will be redeemed. Like something I've noticed with conservatives, especially young conservative men, and not even necessarily conservative, but like anybody who's kind of against the current progressive movement, which makes you a de facto conservative. But a lot of these young guys aren't really conservative. But one thing I've noticed with them is they've taken on this way of thinking that like they're the heroes in this battle, which, you know, both sides do believe they are the heroes in the battle. But a difference in the mentality is, you know, progressives like mob up into these big groups. It's very collectivist. They turn into this big, massive or organism made up of tons of people. And they think that that sort of like mass consensus makes them right. Whereas like something on the conservative side is like, they tend to, to be more independent and splinter off, operate in smaller groups, especially the young people. And they think that that makes them right. Like they think because like clearly, clearly the hive mind and the masses are never right. So we must be the right ones. Our little group, like they want to think that they're the little, I don't even remember what story it is. Is it Greek? Like the, the battalion of like a hundred men fighting 10,000. That's sort of the concert, the young conservative man's fantasy. And even the paramilitary stuff or the, the pro-military stuff that conservatives tend to gravitate toward. Even though the reality often works out this way, a lot of them don't fantasize about like a big, huge, massive army squashing the little guy in one fell swoop. Their fantasy is being the little guy and through your heart and strength and courage, overcoming the big guy. Progressives tend to actually celebrate being the big guy. They don't call themselves that. They don't think of themselves because, you know, they rely on the fact that they don't have the power. Like even when they have power, they'll deny it. They'll completely deny they have any influence or power when... The reality is they have a massive amount, but they do like to have like a large mass to work from because social consensus is so important and it can be a manufactured consensus. It's not that the whole mob of people got together and all agreed. It's just that there's this sort of manufactured consensus. And then it's like, you know, the numbers can't be wrong. It's basically a quantity versus quality discussion. Like the conservative fantasy is like a very small group who's elite are going to fight the big angry mass that's corrupting our traditions and history. 
And there's going to be a future generation of people, though, who look back on that small band of heroes who are like, those were the guys. And it comes from the same place. They're less caught up in that. Like, I find that, that young conservatives are less caught up in what the future will think of them. They're actually more thinking about the past. They have a similar pathology, but it's more like, what would your ancestors think? Like, I've known way more conservatives in my life, Republicans, who literally, like, if you ask them why they vote Republican, they would tell you, because my daddy did. His daddy did. A lot of people think that way. It's like, they want to honor their, their family. And they tend to look backward more. But, you know, like I'm talking about here, conservatives do project a lot onto the past. Like, I mean, an insane amount. I think that's true for everybody, though. I don't think anybody does that more than any other. It's just they do it in different ways. Like, progressives tend to think like, oh, God, everybody in the past was terrible. It's really weird that everybody in the past sucked. But me and people who think like me don't suck. Whereas conservatism is very much like everybody in the past was so much better than we are. Everything was so much cooler. Everything was so much more together. And me and my group of people, we're more like them. And future people are going to be happy that we did that. So you see, it's a similar pathology. It comes out in different ways and has different implications, I think. And I think, like, ideally, those things need each other. Like, I've tried to think about politics, like, through a purely biological lens. And I don't think a lot that way. But I've tried to think of it that way, where I'm like, if this was a body, and it's like these two competing organisms within a larger organism, and they damage each other, and they dominate each other, but the end result is some sort of balance, like, not necessarily the pendulum, like people say, although that plays into it. Like, people say, you know, the pendulum, like, things veering too progressive, and then this reactionary response where things veer back into a so-called regressive place. And, uh, you know, that's the pendulum effect. And, like, the idea isn't just that it swings back and forth, but the idea is that things gradually move along that way, and there's almost a function to that. And I have no problem with that personally. Like, I don't mind a sort of pendulum effect. If you want to take a bigger picture look at politics and the evolution of civilization, I'm not opposed to a sort of pendulum effect. Like, that's basically checks and balances, where it's like when things veer too much this way, they veer too much that way in response. But during a lot of the in-between, they rest in the middle, varying degrees of middle. But I mean, most people won't see that that's a good thing. Like, if you associate with one of those organisms, of the two competing organisms, you just think like, we need to get rid of that other organism, period. We need to dominate that other organism. You don't have that top-down view as if you're part of the larger organism, the larger body that they're a part of. You don't look, I'm thinking, of, you know, these cells are a part of the larger organism. You associate with one of those cells and you think, I, we need to get rid of that other cell. That other cell's ruining everything. But you very rarely look at it from the perspective of the body that they're in 
which might need both of them and it might need them to compete. It might need them to keep each other in check. You're just focused on what's going on in that cell. And for me, it's like if you, it, and it's almost impossible to see things that way. I mean, you're not God. You know, it's very hard to have that kind of distance from something that's taking place all around you, of which you're just a, a tiny, small part. But um, it's like watching a football game, but like not rooting for a team. Like you can watch a football game where you're not a fan of either team and you can say, hey, this is great. These are two evenly matched teams. I don't care who wins. I can just watch good football and the end result is going to be a good football game. But if you have even a slight preference, because I've, I've tested myself with the NFL in this, like I've sat down to watch a game and I've been like, oh, I don't care about either of these teams. That's cool. I can just watch it and not get emotionally invested. I find that if I have even a slight preference toward one team, or I don't, let's say I don't like a certain player on the other team, I find that I start getting emotionally invested and I'm no longer able to see it as this top-down view of like, oh, hey, I'm enjoying the game. Instead, I start to enjoy the one team winning rather than just the game. And if you have any investment at all, which we all do in society and politics, you know, it's almost impossible to see it as just, hey, I'm going to appreciate the game. I'm going to appreciate that sometimes the left scores and sometimes the right scores. And it seems to be better if they're evenly matched. That's my opinion. I think things are better when the pendulum is swinging and it's during that phase that it's closer to the middle. Not that I'm a centrist, because I'm not. Not that I'm a moderate, because I'm not. But I think the gr for the greater good, things are better when the, the pendulum is in mid-motion. A game is better when it's tied. It's just that when you have investment in one side, like if you like it when the pendulum swings to the right, well, you have emotional investment and you're going to be upset when, when it even veers slightly to the left. If you're watching a game and you want one team to win, no matter what, you're going to be upset that the other team scores or that your team didn't score, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I, I try to see it that way as much as I can. It's It's been difficult. Obviously, it's almost impossible for most people. But just to try to look at it that way and say, like, okay, there's there's two competing organisms here. They need each other to survive. Like, without each other, they lose all meaning. Without the right, the left means nothing. Without the left, the, you know, the right means nothing. And we see what happens when you censor one side, too. Like what we've seen happen as conservative outlooks have been discouraged, if not outright censored in many cases, we see that like the, the definition of conservative expands. When you have very few true conservative voices allowed to speak, you end up with people who are actually very liberal being called conservative. And that's what we've seen in the last few years. You know, the, the spectrum has changed. Got to get Batty here one sec. Batty's out there barking. I got to take care of him. But 
Um, you know, it's, speaking of that game, I think this is a good, this is what I wanted to get into. Uh, speaking of that game of, of like the back and forth and everything, you know, a lot of it involves, you know, as we know, like social politics involve a lot of offensive maneuvers. Like they don't, it doesn't involve just doing the right thing. Like, I think you can live that way, and that's actually a way more effective way of getting your point across. One of the most effective ways of getting your, your point across is to live the way you believe and set an example. I've always responded way more to that. Like, the people that I've looked up to in my life have never told me to look up to them. They've never tried to get me to look up to them. I, I've seen the way they live and the way they think, and I've thought, I want to be more like them. Even if they're not my hero or idol, I've just been like, yeah, you know, I want to be more like that person. And so you yourself can set a, a great example that way. And I'm not saying I do it, but I'm just saying like that, I, that idea makes more sense to me to set an example. It's hard to do that today, though, where people don't care about setting an example. Like, we're way more focused on the most superficial aspects of, of what someone thinks. It's all very abstract. It's all very removed from reality. Like, for example, like if, if somebody's your neighbor and they're a really good neighbor, like they never park in your driveway they never have loud music or big parties. They're nice to you. You can trust them. They look out for your house. That's big. I mean, that should be, you know, political, really. Like, that should be considered political. And I mean, it could be. Like, that's how insane things are. What we've seen over the last few years, like, it wouldn't be insane for progressives to say something like oh yeah the new form of protest is that if you like don't agree with your neighbor about everything make their life unbearable i'm sure people do that and so politics could be like whether being a nice neighbor is right or wrong like it's almost surprising that hasn't come up because i mean we saw during summer 2020 how one of the, the points being repeated over and over again on a level, just the number of people saying this, but the idea that like being nice is a way of maintaining the white supremacist status quo, therefore you shouldn't be nice. And this term was invented and I, I you may have heard this because I'm not making it up, but like people I know, like especially young women I know in Olympia here, started all of a sudden started talking about toxic positivity. We heard about toxic this, toxic that for years, and eventually they decided that even being nice and polite is toxic. And the idea behind that, because there is a rationale behind it, like they had to find a way to explain and rationalize how you could go around talking about toxic positivity. Like, yeah, we know there's fake people. You know, we know there's people who pretend to be nice who aren't, but this wasn't even about that. This was about like, polite disagreement over politics they were saying like if somebody disagrees with you politically you're basically obligated to insult them you're obligated to make their life to disrupt them in some way 
And that by just smiling and nodding your head and agreeing to disagree, you're actually enabling the worst things in the world. That was the philosophy behind this toxic positivity thing. And in the during the race riots and all that a few years ago, a couple of years ago, it was being used to say, like, I, I, they were specifically targeting white women and saying, oh, when you just nod your head and agree to disagree, that's just you being a socially conditioned, agreeable white woman. Uh, you've been brainwashed by the patriarchy to be agreeable with everything. And your agreeableness, and we know agreeableness is being polite and kind, you know, being agreeable usually goes along with kindness and politeness. But they were saying like, oh yeah, that because you've been taught to be polite and kind and agree to disagree and not argue and fight with everybody, no matter what they believe, you're actually enabling the worst possible thing. So that's how they got that. That's how they snuck that one in there. But the fact that they could convince people of that is crazy. So it's not it's not insane to me that like politics in five years could be like whether or not you kill your neighbor. Oh, your neighbor has a Trump's felt flag. Oh, your neighbor has one of those no human is illegal signs. You better make their life hell. And if that were the case, like if it became a major point that like neighbors with different beliefs were targeting each other and harassing each other, you could see that becoming a, a talking point at a presidential debate. Conservatives would be like, we believe in being neighborly. Progressives are like, not if your neighbor's a Nazi. Just pretty much how it is already. It's just that it, the debate isn't about being a neighbor or not. But you could see it could be about anything. Tomorrow it could be about anything. We can turn this, we can use anything. But what's really effective, you know, like going back to the game idea that these are two competing teams within a game, you know, two cells within an organism, within a body. I sometimes think about like, what's, what is effective? Like what's effective strategy? Like what's effective propaganda? And I find that, and maybe this is just how I feel about it. Like maybe this isn't true for everybody, but I can tell you that like when somebody uses your own words against you, that's way more effective long-term that hits way closer to the bone than making up words and making up things or being too outrageous. Like one thing that conservatives did really well, or just anybody who was reactionary or not going along with the progressives, one thing that they, they did really well is turn the words wokeness and the phrase, the right side of history, into a joke. And if you notice, progressives don't use those as much anymore. There's way less of it. Because I saw people first start to call themselves woke. Like progressive friends that I had, I noticed probably about a decade ago, maybe less. Maybe 2013, 2015, somewhere in between there. I started to notice that progressive friends I had in Olympia started to like call themselves woke. Or call their friends woke as a compliment. It was like, he's so woke. There was even a woman I know here who like posted this tribute to her husband and said like, you know, my husband's so great because of this, 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 and this. And then she said, and he's so woke. 
And it was a new word at that time. And I, I noticed it right away. I was like, oh, this is a new word. I'm definitely, if I'm conservative about anything, it's language. Even though I abuse and, and destroy language personally, like when you see a new word just take off, I fear that for some reason. I, there's just something in me that goes, I don't trust this. I don't trust this new word. And that's, that's how I felt about woke. I noticed people started to use it and I didn't know where it came from. I knew that the sort of people who were using it though initially were the sort of like white progressives I knew, the white liberals who tended to use um, like Ebonics through text messages and online. Like the sort of people who like kind of like half, half ironically talked like rappers and then they just started to talk like that. And I didn't know where it came from, though. I just saw that, like, white liberals were using that all the time. And they were using it to mean someone who's progressive, who has, you know, the basic beliefs you have to subscribe to, to be a modern progressive. And then it kind of took off. It became popular. And, and around that time, too, is when I first started hearing right side of history as well. Like, I, I, I still remember the first couple times I heard it. And I was like, that's an interesting and catchy phrase. I understand why that's an effective phrase to use, but I remember the first couple times I heard it when I realized that it wasn't just a one-off and I realized that, oh, I've now heard this a few times. I, I just kind of watched it. And then as those things took off, you know, people were like, what the fuck? And eventually like, you know, that became this catch-all term. I'm not sure when that happened. You know, because it, what it used to be is like PC. Like woke today is used in the same way that PC was used when I was growing up. And not just growing up, but up until seem, seemingly the early 2010s. Like what you would typically hear people say, like your, your uh, great uncle at the dinner table would be like, I just, here's the thing, I just don't like this politically correct stuff. You heard that all the time. You'd hear PC culture, the PC police. It's exactly the same thing. I mean, and political, political correctness is always evolving. Like we, we think of it as static. And that, that shows you how like limited our view of history is. Like our own versions of good and bad and what you should do and what you shouldn't do and what's politically correct changes before our very eyes. Like we feel differently about things that happened in our lifetime 20 years after the fact. There's people who were gung-ho for the Iraq war when it happened 20 years ago who today are like, yeah, you know, I, I, I just don't understand why we did it. So it's like your opinion changes on things you experienced within your own lifetime, within a week, within a, a year. Sometimes you wake up the next day and feel completely different about something. So that alone should tell you like you can't trust how history will view you and you can't trust even how you view history or what you would have done back then. Because I still remember my freshman class at Evergreen, it was a sociology class, and they started things out with some like really basic ideas. They, they thought, I mean, it was a good, I liked the class, I liked the professors, and they probably had to do it this way. But, they, you know, it was a real like intro to sociology sort of thing, because they... They were like, you know that like people, like women in the Middle Ages, like she was like, women 200 years ago, like had to wear dresses. They couldn't wear pants. It just shows you how things change, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this girl raised her hand and she goes, I know that I would have worn pants. 
And the professor was this lesbian who wore giant hockey jerseys every day. It was a cool look. She was like this, this little like lesbian, nerdy looking lesbian with glasses and like short hair. And she wore these just huge baggy hockey jerseys. She was obsessed with hockey. And she was very like clinical. And I remember this girl raised her hand though, because they were talking like, you know, things change and, you know, we can see like what's accepted now isn't, isn't accepted later and this and that. And, you know, just basic ideas, things change. Basically what I'm saying in this episode. And this girl that was like, I would have done this. She's like, I would have worn pants anyway. And the professor goes, oh, okay, are you sure? And the girl was like, I just, she's like, she's like, she's like, you know, the professor is basically, you don't know what it was like to live back then. And like, you might've just worn a dress like everybody else. Like you probably never even would have conceived of wearing pants. Like if you were a woman in an era where women weren't allowed to wear pants, it might not even have been an option in your brain. You just, this, you were a fish in the water and you didn't see the water. It's like saying like, I would have gone up for air. It's like, well, if all you knew is the water, like, how do you even know that's up there? But this girl was like, I just know. Because the professor gave her pushback. She's like, do you really know that? I mean, you don't know what it would have been like to, to be a woman back then. And the girl's like, I just know. I just know that I would have worn pants. Like, okay. And the teacher said, okay. What do you say in response to that? That same girl became an RA in one of the dorms. And a friend of mine was living in the dorms. And there was a night that my buddy Miles and I went to go hang out with that guy. And Miles was the only one who was 21. I was like, I was like fucking 18 or something, 19. And so Miles bought like a, like a 24 pack and we came back to the dorms and, you know, I don't know, you're not supposed to drink there, I guess, but I just figured like, we're going to quickly bring the beer in. But my friend, like, he, he had gone somewhere else, and he left his dorm locked. And so we had to wait out in the hall with this big case of beer. Sure enough, the girl, the pants girl, comes walking up the stairs, and she's an RA. And she goes, does one of you have an ID for that beer? And none of us said a word. And we were like, what beer, basically? And she goes, I need to see if someone has an ID for that beer. Well, Miles has, he's 21. But we don't know what's going to happen. Like, I think he was even at the, I think he was still going there at the time, maybe. I was definitely going there. Like, we don't know what the policy is. Like, if you're 21 and you have a case of beer in the dorms with a bunch of underage people, like, what happens? You get the police called? Like, who knows? So we didn't, none of us wanted to admit to having the beer. Like, he didn't, he didn't know what was going to happen. So she uh like and my buddy steve from high school was visiting and like he started kind of mouthing off to her and then she like radioed in they're like she's like there's a disturbance here blah 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 and so we all just took off my friend actually like saw her pouring out each and every single beer like i get it that if, if you're an ra you gotta monitor shit but like my drug dealer was an ra i bought weed from an ra mushrooms he was like the most popular guy on campus and his, the dorm that he he managed or whatever they do like that he advised it wasn't a, it wasn't a total mess yeah people were getting high and partying and stuff but it, you know it wasn't that bad or anything it was just a college dorm but it's like the fact that she just enforced those rules so ruthlessly like she could have come up the stairs and like we're obviously not causing trouble and been like oh hey guys I can't have you just like sitting in this dorm with a case of beer. 
Like you can either take it out or do something. I can't have you just sitting in the hallway in, in the underage dorms or the case of beer. Totally reasonable. Instead, she was like, does one of you have ID? She became a cop. I would bet you, you can only imagine what she was doing during Coronavirus. A new rule for me to enforce? And this is the same woman who was saying like she'd break this rule about dresses and she would have worn pants 300 years ago, even though women weren't allowed to. You would have been wearing a dress. She would have been wearing a dress 300 years ago and ruthlessly enforcing that. If another woman wore pants, she would have fucking, you know, scalded her, thrown scalding water on her. Like she would have been the one enforcing that rule. You know, because of course the girl is like, things would have been different. Because like she's imagining that 300 years ago, she's who she is now. She's the girl who wore pants. Or she's, she's a girl now who wears pants and is liberated. So obviously that's who she would be then. But then look what she is. She's a snitch. She's enforcing stupid rules. I can only imagine what she's like now. I just thought that was perfect, though, because I remember her. I didn't know she was an RA, and she just came up the stairs and just instantly became exactly what you'd expect. The middle-aged mom, you know, making a scene. Like, she, her attitude was exactly like, uh, at my high school, they had these parking lot attendants. They were these women. They were fucking mean. They were so mean. Like, they took their jobs so seriously. Like, they're not even security guards or anything. They're just these, like, women who stand out there to make sure you don't cut class. And they were so mean about it. That's what this girl was like. like make that girl a, a parking lot attendant. She's going to be fucking mean. Put that girl in the, the 1700s. She's going to be being mean to any girl who wears pants while she wears her dresses. Like, she, doesn't know, she has no idea who, she's, who she is. Um, but just to crawl out from that tangent, what I'm talking about though is like the sort of strategy of, of using what people say against them, using what they call themselves, not using what they say, because I don't mean it in a petty way where you try to turn, where you try to manipulate people's words against them or like change the meaning. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is like, when people started calling themselves woke, and I watched it evolve, when, when wokeness replaced political correctness as the catch-all term for that way of thinking, for the, the progressive agenda, basically, some reactionary people very effectively started using that pejoratively. Oh, look at those woke people. They didn't make that up. I, a lot of people don't even know where that came from. There's like 85-year-old mega Republicans who woke is part of their daily fucking lexicon. And they don't even know where it came from. Like, they might not even know that those people called themselves that. They just know that it's a, a negative term. Like, you, and you only see it used negatively now. You rarely, if ever, see progressives say, oh, my husband is so woke. If they do, it's like a joke. Instead, it's, it's only a pejorative, and guess what? They've stopped using it for them, themselves. People who are woke don't call themselves woke anymore. I don't use the term myself. I put it in quotes. I only use it sometimes just in a sort of meta way to discuss it. 
But it was really effective to start calling them that. The calling that, like, by calling them woke, what they were calling themselves, you were using. One sec here. Okay, got a call. They they were using their own language against them, and it became a catch-all for all of the negative characteristics that those people had. Like when a reactionary started saying woke, and when that made its way onto Fox News, when that made its way onto to Tucker Carlson, it became associated with the negative characteristics, like preachy, always changing their views, but being completely dogmatic about it. You know, totally like, like just having the most cynical, angry outlook on history. You know, and we, we know what that means, but it became associated only with that. You, you no longer saw progressives calling themselves woke as if it signaled their virtue. You only hear conservatives now use it negatively. Same thing with right side of history. Once again, conservatives very um, effectively started to use that against them. Like it became effective to be like, oh, the right. Because everybody knows, if you actually think about that, you don't have to hyperanalyze it like me. You don't have to hyperanalyze it like me. You, know, you don't have to hyperanalyze it. If you just hear that, like you know something's wrong. You know something's wrong with that way of thinking or talking. And so when conservatives started to use that mockingly, it was a really effective tool. And what made it so effective, though, is that progressives themselves had been saying it over and over again. It's so self-righteous. It's, it, it's so silly. So that ended up being really effective. Like, that went mainstream. The mockery of right side of history went mainstream. And then you had people who milked it way too far. Like, you have the pundits like Ben Shapiro who milked it. I think he called his book that or something. And by then it's over, though. Like, they stopped using it. You don't see progressives say that much anymore. At least not at the cutting edge. Like, the people who are churning, who are really fueling this thing have certainly stopped using it. So, uh... That's a sign, though, to, to stop using it pejoratively. Like, now it does nothing to call that woke or right side of history. Like, that joke's been made. And it happened earlier on with safe space. That was another one that the reactionaries actually handled really well. Trigger warning and safe space were really fucking silly when they emerged. That's, those are, I saw those emerge, too. When I first started, like, seeing coworkers... Again, this, this, all, this all first proliferates among young women. I don't say that to criticize them. I say it simply because I've, I've seen it to be true. I believe it to be true. Where like these ideas first become popular among young women. Like, I didn't know a single man, a single boy, who, said, who, who talked about trigger warnings or safe spaces back when that was new. It was all coming from women. And uh, I don't even want to call it a reactionary movement. I think a lot of really normal liberals hated that shit too when it emerged. A lot of the more vocal criticism of it initially came from liberals too. It was kind of like anybody who even leans 
toward the middle or the right at all. Like they don't even have to be a conservative or a reactionary. Like they responded in a very visceral way when they heard safe space or trigger warning. I hate to even use those words anymore. And you can see like South Park exploited the fuck out of those. Exploited the fuck. Exploited the fuck. Um, South Park exploited those. Middle of the road, mainstream people like Joe Rogan milked that to death. Like Joe Rogan has has a, how many specials that are like maybe just one, <laughs> but he had that special. That I think it was called like Trigger Warning or Triggered. You started to see like very very normal middle of the road people, but reactionaries too were like, "Oh, you triggered? Oh, is this gonna trigger you? Oh, do you need your safe space?" That was actually really effective. Like even though I cringe saying that now, that was actually very effective at the time. Because it was using their own framework against them. It was like, oh, you actually take this idea of trigger warnings and safe spaces seriously. So we're going to mock you using your own framework. And really normal people were like, yeah, you know, that is weird. Normal liberals were like, that, that, that is a fucking weird thing they're doing. Same thing ended up happening with woke and right side of history. But you can see like once they stopped talking that way, the mockery loses its power. Like to me, when I hear somebody make fun of those things now, it's embarrassing. And it does nothing because they've moved on. Like they're no longer calling themselves that. They're no longer using that language. So you have to use the language they're currently using against them. If you care about doing that at all. Like for me, it's about disengagement. But I think you should use the words they're using. And, you know, just an, an example of this on the left, because, I mean, what the left tends to do is, is they tend to, I mean, think about something like Nazi, because that's the opposite of what I'm talking about. And I, I, before I get into that, I'll segue, because I was just talking about, like, things that reactionaries and just anyone who's not progressive has done effectively. Making fun of safe spaces for a while was, was effective, making fun of triggers, making fun of the term woke right side of history that was effective for a while and the reason it was effective is because it was using their language however the right's been really ineffective when it makes up its own language like even though this groomer thing has taken off and there's a lot of conservatives and reactionaries who are calling these people groomers because of you know sexualizing young children the gender bending stuff you know we know why they're calling them groomers and, and pedophiles audiophiles but it's not as effective. Like, because the reality is, like, the average Democrat, when they hear you say that, like, all liberals are pedophiles, they're like, I'm not a, I'm not a pedophile. Like, because like, here's the reality. Most Democrats are normal people. And while they might go along with stuff you don't like, a lot of them are normal people. And so calling them pedophiles is ridiculous. And it, and it doesn't change their way. Of, it doesn't make them reflect at all. Because, you know, if, if liberals themselves were calling themselves audiophiles, well, it would make sense to call them audiophiles. But the average Democrat parent is not, is not a pedophile. And their kid isn't even going to transition you know, 
what's significant about that is that it's happening as much as it is, but it's not going to impact the majority of people. We need to like look at it and talk about it critically because when you see a 4,000% increase of teenage girls identifying as transgender, something really fucking crazy is going on. But that doesn't mean that like every liberal is going to have a trans kid. It doesn't mean every liberal is going to over-sexualize their young child. So referring to Democrats as, as pedophiles isn't effective. Because most of them just go, what? Whereas, like, when people are calling themselves woke, the people who use that went like, oh. Like, you're starting to use my word against me. But it's not the same for pedophiles. It's not very effective. And, and the, the right's approach to that is death by a thousand cuts. Like, some of these pundits today, like, they think that if they reference that enough, that it will eventually change the game. But be accurate. Like, use the actual language they're using. Don't jump to pejoratives that don't actually apply. Because that's kind of how the left has been with Nazi, where I don't think that calling people Nazis has been nearly as effective as people tend to think it's been. I think a lot of other things have. Like, r the term racist has, a, has been very effective. That one, that's kind of like the ace card. The word racist has been kind of like the, the ace. Like, you didn't know I had this, huh? But uh, Nazi, a little less so. Because very few people on the right are Nazis. And when they hear themselves called a Nazi, there's no reflection. They know they're not a Nazi. It's not effective because it's not accurate. And there's a lot of normal people out there who hear that, and it's not effective for them either. Like, there's a lot of Democrats and liberals who roll their eyes at that stuff. Well, a lot of them have gotten on board with doing that, with calling everybody a Nazi. There's a lot of really normal people with all kinds of political viewpoints who, thinks it's to who think it's totally absurd to call your enemies Nazis when they're not, or fascists. Fascist has been a little more effective. I don't know why. But both those things, they've been effective not because they're truly efficient. Like some of these other things were efficient. Like the way that the, the, the right used woke and right side of history and safe spaces and trigger warnings, that was very efficient. Like that covered a lot of ground. That spread organically. A few years ago, you had a lot of people just going around going, oh, trigger warning, oh, you need a safe space. <laughs> you know, you had a lot of people just saying that. It was very organic. With, with the Nazi and fascist thing, it's, again, like death by a thousand cuts. It's only been effective because if you tie somebody down and punch them very softly long enough, they'll eventually die. It's not a big one-two punch. They, you knock them out. Blunt force to the head kills him. It's not effective in that way. Calling someone a Nazi or a fascist, the only reason that's been effective is because that's mainstream for one. Like calling conservatives that has become a mainstream thing to do. It used to be just in college classrooms, but it's become mainstream. It's, it's become acceptable in the mainstream to call conservatives and Republicans Nazis and fascists. 
even though most people know that that's a huge stretch, a massive stretch for most people. No different than calling all Democrats pedophiles or groomers. But the thing is, it doesn't cause any reflection in the person it's addressing. Like the only reason it's been effective is because, you know, progressivism has had such a stranglehold on popular culture. And conservative voices are very limited right now. You know, I know, I know everybody, I know progressives think that the conservatives are allowed to say and do whatever they want. Everybody thinks their opponent is allowed to do whatever they want and they themselves are being kept down. But there's, there is way more censorship of conservative views of all kinds, not just at the extreme. And so that's kind of tied down conservatism, where you're tied down and you're being hit very, very softly over and over again with the word Nazi and fascist. And eventually that's taken its toll. As more and more people do that, as it becomes more and more acceptable to talk that way, and your opponent is tied down, it's effective, but it's not efficient. It's not effective. What's been more effective, it again goes back to using the terminology that your enemy uses for themselves. Like, it was very effective. I watched uh, Obama bin Biden's speech the other night. And what I thought was very effective in it was him using the term mega Republicans, because that's what they call themselves. Like mega is a term that, you know, Trump's felt supporters call themselves. So by Biden actually saying mega conservatives, by making mega itself, which has already been socially unacceptable in a lot of places. If you live on the coasts, if you live in urban areas, like being mega is unacceptable. But with the president using that in a speech to denounce his political opponent, specifying mega Republicans, like using the actual terminology. I saw saw some criticism of this where people were like, I can't believe he said mega Republicans. That's half the country. Well, they know that. They, They know that. They know that's, you know, roughly half the country. But it's more effective than saying white supremacists, neo-Nazis, extremists. Because that's, that's kind of how they've talked up until now. Up until now when they make these statements, they did it on 9-11. They even had George Bushel. They even had George W. Bushel. George W. Bushel. They had George Bushel, you know, denounce white supremacists, extremists. Well, like, like that might apply to us. Like, there might be a legitimate extremist out there who's like, "Fuck, they're gonna come out. They're gonna come for me." But the majority of conservatives hear that and they're like, "One, you call everybody an extremist. Two, I'm not an extremist, so this is stupid." But when you say mega Republicans, all of a sudden, everybody who voted for Trumpsfeld, everybody who simply prefers Trumpsfeld over Obama and Biden, they're suddenly like, "Well, wait a second. That's pretty broad. But, you know, it was effective. And, like, people were critical of that because they were like, how dare he say that? But I'm like, well, that's going to be more effective. Because he's using the terminology that they themselves use. Extremists don't call themselves extremists. Oh, hey, dude, you're like me. You're an extremist like me, man. Nobody calls himself an extremist. So when you address extremists, someone can always say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Screw you. 
But when you say mega Republicans, all of a sudden, anybody who even for a second bought into Trumpsfeld is like, well, hey, wait a second, you're talking about me. And so by specifically turning the narrative, you know, focusing the narrative on the term mega, well, it's like calling your enemies woke. Eventually, they're going to stop using it. You want to hit close to home and you hit close to home with reality. I mean, you can even see this on an individual personal level where I've never been hurt or insulted if somebody insults me about something that didn't happen or isn't true. And growing up, there was a lot of that. Like growing up, being a kid, being a boy, there's a lot of that verbal sparring, you know, testing of each other. I played football, you know, just being a kid in school, having friends, all that happens. I was never hurt when somebody like came up with some bullshit. I might have been offended that they would even try to do that. Like, oh, you really think that you can put me in my place that way? You really, you really think you can put put me in your place that way? My place, my place. Um, you don't even know what my place is. So how do you know where to put me? You don't even know. You don't even know where my place is. So how the fuck do you know how to put me there? That's a good one. But that's how it feels, because like there were times in school, like. You, like like a, you're drinking water and like a drop of water hits your crotch and somebody notices that there's like a little droplet of water on your crotch and like dude you pissed your pants oh dude he pissed his pants like you're more you're just pissed off that they would even try to do that whereas like if you actually pissed your pants you may be like fuck he he, he outed me but it's going to bother you in the other instances it's not it's not going to deeply bother you because you're just going to be like fucking idiot like obviously I didn't piss my pants Or it's like a, a, a man walks by you and you, you just glance over and your friend's like, oh, you just, are you gay? Oh, you, will look, you, will, you looked at a guy. Are you gay? It's like you're going to be offended because they would even think to try that. But you're not going to think, oh, God, he's on to me. He's making fun of me for something that's real. Which is why I've always respected it when someone makes fun of me for something that's accurate. Like, if you notice some sort of tick I have, and I have many, if you notice some sort of quirk I have, and you point it out, like, there you go. You got me. At least it's real. So I think that can apply to politics as well, where it's like, point out what they're saying themselves. Point out what they're calling themselves. Turn that into a bad thing. Turn that into something that people have a negative association with. Where if, if they're calling themselves woke, make woke something that when people hear it, they think bad thoughts based on what it actually is and those people's actual use of it. But, you know, we've gone into just pure ad hominem now. Because, I mean, I think there's always going to be ad hominem, but it's like what I'm getting at is like it seems like ad hominem is just inevitable and it can be really effective. But ad hominem is way more effective when it's based on something real. Not something made up, not something manufactured. If you're actually taking what's there, ad hominem can be effective. And we just live in ad hominem times. Like there's not even an attempt to debate or discuss now. Anything that happens now, there's no discussion of it. 
there's just the the only thing that takes place is just like oh here's a new opportunity to launch a volley of arrows at the enemy oh there was a school shooting what can we use about this to fire arrows at the enemy oh uh you know oh this person uh got canceled because they said this how can we use this to launch arrows at our enemy But I think, you know, if you take something that's real, if you take something that's an, a fairly accurate reflection, if not of those people, at least like an accurate reflection of how they talk and how they refer to themselves, well, those arrows are going to hit a lot more effectively. And I'm glad that I don't play these games. You know, I'm glad that like I'm just kind of looking at it and seeing like, okay, this is a game people are playing what's effective and what's not. Yeah, it, it is effective when you tie someone down and gently jab them to death, a gentle jab. That's effective if you have that amount of control and influence. But it's not sustainable. And chances are it's, it's not even going to do the job. So you should be doing what's effective. You should be doing what's efficient. What efficiently gets your point across what what sort of ad hominem efficient efficiently reveals your enemy for what they are that's what the focus should be if you're going to do that and it seems like a lot of people are but um i'm gonna sign off here but um yeah i mean it's just it's kind of interesting to watch it because like on one hand there's a lot of strategy there's a lot of people, there's institutions, just groups of people who are all the time trying to come up with new strategies. You can really see it in, in, in real time. You can really see it in real time. Like if you look at Twitter or a place like that, you can actually see networks of people trying to come up with cohesive weaponry to use against their enemy in real time. Like an event happens and someone comes up with some clever response aimed at their enemy. And you see other people go, oh, hey, he's firing his arrows there. Let's all fire our arrows there. And so you can see these strategies develop in real time. Some of them are manufactured. Like you can tell when something's a campaign. And, and you cancel is another version of that. Like I don't use cancel culture as a phrase because one, it's been around forever. It refers to everything. It's not new. Cancel culture is not a new thing. And then people get hung up on the semantics of it. I just say censorship. I just say coercion. I just go with the basic time-honored words for what is taking place. The idea of like, because the second you say cancel culture, it becomes a distraction. And that's how some of these other words like woke and right side of history have become. We're like, now when you say it, it's no longer an effective weapon against your enemy. They laugh at it. They're like, oh, you're still calling people woke. Are you still making fun of us for that? It, it just bounces off them because they've developed an immunity to that one. It was effective for a while, but they've developed an immunity. Same thing has happened with cancel culture. Where like there was a point where like that first started escalating. There were more people getting literally canceled. Like it made sense. I've never liked that buzzword. I've never trusted that that catchphrase, cancel culture. Again, I'm a linguistic conservative in many ways. 
especially when it comes to catchphrases and buzzwords. But uh, when, when that one came about, like it made sense in context with like, there were actually people getting shows canceled. There were actually public figures who were having to step down, getting fired, getting their actual shows. Like Roseanne, she actually got written out of her own show, which is, never forget that one. <laughs> they'll, they'll write Roseanne out of her own show because of this stuff. But you had people like losing work and things like that. So it made sense with that in mind. Like actors and celebrities are getting canceled literally for this. But then it just became the catch-all for all this stuff. And then now when you see people talk about it, like it was effective for a minute because it was what was happening. When you said like, oh, this cancel culture, like that took off because it's a catchy phrase. And you could see that something like that was happening. And that was actually a fairly accurate way of describing it. But now when you see it come up, you know, it's no longer an effective weapon. And now when you see it come up, you usually see people be like, what does cancellation mean anyway? What does cancellation mean anyway? Like, what does that even mean? Like, it becomes a semantics debate. And I've said this before, but like the second that the, the, the point you're trying to make becomes meta, like when it becomes like about dissecting the word you use, like your point is no longer effective. I've said this before about using the Third Reich and the Holocaust to make political points today. When you do that, no matter who you are, because you see conservatives do it themselves and it's even dumber. It's even dumber when conservatives are like, coronavirus, like putting us in concentration camps. Oh, pretty soon they're going to put us in concentration camp. You know, don't do that. I mean, you saw it the other day. I saw a bunch of responses to the Obama speech. People like... Does he remind you of Hitler? Don't he re doesn't he remind you of Hitler? It's like don't do what they always do. You know how it affect you know how effective it is when they do it to you. So why would you do it to them? That's like a cycle of abuse thing where like my dad called me Hitler my whole life. My dad used to come home from work and he'd get drunk and he never laid a finger on me. He'd look me in the eyes though and he'd say what are you doing, Hitler? What are you doing, little Hitler? I didn't know when I gave birth to a son that he'd be Hitler. And then you grow up and the cycle of abuse is that you have a son. You get drunk and you look him in the eye and you say, My dad always said that I was Hitler. I didn't know that my son would be Hitler too. I don't know. But <laughs> uh, it's like a cycle of abuse thing with, with that where it's like, so many people on the right have been called Nazis and Hitler for years that now when they have an opportunity, the cycle of abuse kicks in. They're like, I'm going to do what they did to me. I'm going to do what they did to me. And stupid. Don't do that. Because when you do that, it, it never becomes an actual discussion of your target. Like when somebody called Trumpsfeld Hitler, it never resulted in an intelligent discussion of what makes Trumpsfeld like Hitler. Instead, it becomes a discussion about Hitler and the Third Reich. And someone always says, like, did you, did you ever even read about Hitler? You, you end up, if you want to have a discussion about Hitler, a good way to do it is to compare your, your target to Hitler. Because you're not going to end up having a discussion about the thing that you're targeting, which is the whole point. Like, if you're upset about Joe Obama, Ben Biden, 
describe what he actually said and did. Because, you know, I, I didn't, to me, it just seemed like more of the same. It just seemed like a good representation of political discourse today. The only part that I raised an eyebrow at was when he was like, you have your little guns? Well, you're going to be up against F F-16s. and That, that was kind of crazy to me. It was like, you guys have your guns? Well, the, the American military is just going to smash you with our artillery. I thought that was pretty wild. That was the only moment that I actually had, had to like look at the screen and be like, wait, what? But if you call him Hitler for what he said, you know, it's like you're just going to end up having a debate about Hitler and the Holocaust and all this. You're not actually going to talk about what he said when simply saying what he said should be enough. Like saying, oh, the president of the United States made a broad generalization about mega Republicans, you know, of which there are many out there, some who you would never even know. It's not just the most outspoken ones, obviously. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of people who lean that way. And then you segued at some point into talking about like how if you think that your guns will protect will, will protect you from the current government that you know you'll be smashed by or even if not protect like even if he meant like oh if you use your guns to try to overthrow the government which isn't happening nobody's tried to do that so far um but even if that's what he meant like you can just say like the president talked about like killing gun owners with airplanes and bombs you know let's not compare him to hitler let's just say hey Obama bin Biden said that. Same thing with Trumpsville. Don't compare him to Hitler. Talk about what he said and did. You end up having a conversation about the metaphor rather than the thing itself. And the whole point, the whole point of a metaphor is not so that you dissect the metaphor and have to really think of it or the analogy. Like the whole point of an analogy is not to put emphasis on the analogy itself. The whole point is to put emphasis on the thing that you are using the analogy to illuminate, to illuminate. Like if, if you want, like let's say there's there's a, a situation where saying Obama bin Biden is just like Hitler. Well, that should lead to a discussion of Obama bin Biden. It shouldn't lead to a discussion of Hitler. So this is another, it's strategy, I guess. But to me, it just seems natural. Don't compare it to something that's going to distract from the point you're trying to make. But, you know, what we've learned is just the power of language because, you know, we're so hyper-exposed to written word now. We see so many people expressing themselves constantly. Like the world I grew up in was one where you don't know what a lot of people think. You know, you don't know, like, most of your interactions with people are just polite, basic. And if they're a dick, they're a dick. But most of your interactions are through school, professional. Like, the only people who you really know what they think are, like, your family and friends. But the age that we've been in now for 15 years, longer, but, like, 15 years has been really where the, uh, the graph starts to spike upward. And that's like, we're seeing so many people's ideas. We're, we're taking in so much of their outlook. Like, I didn't know people's political outlooks growing up. 
I didn't know my best friend's dad's political beliefs. I, I practically lived in and out of their house. I didn't know his political beliefs until Obama got elected in 2008. I'd known this guy my entire life. I was in my, I was like 23 or something. And I, I was visiting his family and his dad was like, so what do you think of the guy they just elected? This Obama. And I was like, uh, you know, not a fan. And he goes, I guess they'll just elect anybody nowadays, won't they? And uh, someone could take that the wrong way. I don't know. Knowing this guy, I think he just meant like this, this nobody junior senator Democrat. But he wasn't happy, as many people weren't. But that, it's, it just tells you a lot, though. Like, I, like his dad is a, a businessman. He like ran his own business. Obviously, for financial reasons, would run conservative. He's also from the Midwest, grew up in a good, just old school, Midwestern American family. And so it makes sense, like, you know, why he'd have the beliefs he has. But what's interesting to me is that, like, I, I knew this family so well. And the family was open and candid with me. You know, it's like they didn't, it wasn't like they were hiding behind a veneer of politeness they were just a normal family, and like I knew everything about them pretty much. I really did. Like I, I feel like I knew everything about them, and it took until Obama get, got elected for him to be like, I guess they'll just elect anybody now, huh? And that just tells you a lot about the world I grew up in, though, where in this day and age, it's like I might have been Facebook friends with his dad, and, he, and I don't think he has a Facebook account, but it's like just as an example, like in this day and age, like I might, I might have politics might have never come up, but like I would have seen his Facebook post where he's like, "Oh my fucking god, can you believe they did this? Can you believe this woke stuff, man? Can you believe this woke stuff?" And and I'd be like, "Oh wow, I know what he believes. Wow." And so we're exposed to all of that. People express that stuff openly. They've also become more open about it in real life interaction, especially with those ideas like toxic positivity getting installed. That like holding back is somehow worse than berating somebody. So because of that, like people test you and they're upfront, like they, they'll continually test you. It's crazy. They'll throw little things out at you. They'll test your allegiance. And I don't say that from a paranoid place. It's not like it happens every time, but I don't even know if people realize they're doing that. Like people will ask you a certain question and you go, huh, if I answer this honestly, or, or whether, it, what, no matter how I answer, I just become aware of like, oh, this is, they're like filtering me. They're testing me. And so that's been encouraged to be that way offline. Because the idea is that like, if you're not actively campaigning for your cause all the time and calling people out who don't agree and promoting your, your own views or your group's views, if you're not doing that, you're somehow doing something wrong. You're somehow... You know, you're, you're under the spell of this toxic agreeableness by just wanting to get along with the people you see on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, you know, the, the idea, though, is like, like that we're now exposed to that, like offline as well as online, especially online. And that just wasn't something that really crossed your mind at previous points. Like maybe you'd pick on pick up on something here or there, but it just really didn't even come up. Like even during the Bush era, I was very politically aware during the presidency of George Bushel.
George W. Bushel. I was very observant of what was going on. I knew some people's parents, like, you know, were, were mad about 9-11 and pro-Bushel and pro-Bushel. And that kind of, but it, it didn't really come up. Like, they didn't really say much about it. And that was the era, too, of, like, you don't talk about religion or politics at the dinner table. That was just kind of part of it. And the current progressive ideology is, like, you do. You talk about politics throughout the entire meal. And so that's something that's changed about all this. Is like, you just know that much more about people. You're exposed to, like, so much more about what they think and what they want to put across. And you just never would have been exposed to that. You never would have been thinking about, like, what's effective strategy. There was no place to express it either. Because it's not just the accounts. The, like, on Facebook, you're connected to people with their real names. And they're people that you know or at least know of. They're, like, in your network somehow. And then those people might have, like, anonymous accounts all over the Internet. Like, they might have anonymous accounts on Twitter. Maybe more than one. And who knows what they're saying there. You know, so they're putting that out into the world. And... I don't know. I, I guess I can't imagine the world I grew up in if this was a part of it. Like, I can't imagine if, like, large groups of people were repeating, like, phrases like Nazi, fascist, and groomer. It, it's hard to imagine the world I grew up in with that kind of dialogue going on. Like, the idea of there being devices that you check where you just see a ton of that. The idea of that kind of coming up in casual conversation, maybe not everywhere, but just even at all. People didn't seem that concerned about it. It seemed like the biggest dividing line among people in the era I grew up in was how religious you were. Some people were hardcore evangelists, and they usually operated in their own sphere. Like, kids I knew whose parents were evangelists, like, those kids were often homeschooled or went to, a, like, some sort of private Christian school. And they seemed to be the main ones who set themselves apart. Like, I heard a story growing up about, like, this girl who her parents were very religious. And one of the girls at her birthday party said something sucked. She goes, like, like a girl said something, and this, this girl who was at the birthday party goes, oh, that sucks. Because everybody said that. And the girl's mom, the, the birthday girl's mom, who was, I knew the family, she was very religious. The mom heard this girl say, that sucks. And she stopped the party and she was like, oh my God, like we, you just said sucks. We need to stop and pray. And so like they stopped the party and they all prayed because a girl said something sucked. And I remember thinking about that at the time. And I was like, fuck. Like I heard about it through my mom. Like, they traveled through the, the mom grapevine. Because all the other moms were like, can you believe that? Because in our households, like, all my friend and my friend's households in my house, they're going around, everything sucked. And we never thought about what that meant. Like, that didn't seem like a dirty thing to say. You could turn on TV and people are saying that. We didn't think, like, oh, it sucks dick. We never thought about, like, what it sucks. I mean, I never thought about it sexually at all. Like, I thought of it just as sort of like, could be, I never thought about it. But like, if I want to think about it now, I'm like, it could be like vampiric. Just something that sucks the good out of something. 
maybe it originally started as like sucks dick because people would you know eventually it got around to like oh that sucks dick so maybe it did have a sexual connotation but it wasn't something you thought of and it became so normal and mainstream that like you just never thought about it and so gossip traveled about this girl's birthday party where it was like can you believe her crazy religious mom made everybody pray because a girl said sucked and i remember like it really made me think more about the term suck than i ever had hearing that i was like oh did her mom think that it means like sucking dick? Like, did she think that that's what it means? Like, what's her angle? You know, what is, what is, where is she coming from on this? But they were the people who set themselves aside. Like the moms were gossiping about them because it's like, whoa, those people are different. It wasn't really political in nature. Like you had conservative parents in some families, but like, culturally everybody kind of shared the same outlook i think that's what it is you might have gone to one kid's house and his parents voted bill clinton you go to another friend's house and his parents voted for bob dole you don't even think about it you know you just didn't even think about it unless there was something culturally that separated them like the religious and evangelical families where i lived they were culturally way different. And people thought about them the same, way, the same way they think about out-of-control progressives today. It was like, whoa, those people are out there. Those people aren't fun to be around. They're not very convincing either. Like her praying about saying the word sucks doesn't make me want to stop saying the word suck. And so we're exposed to way more of that now. And the dialogue, you know, the, just the language is escalated because we are at a point now where there's no debate or discussion. And you could see, like, it was so cute to see, and I think this applies to me too, but it was kind of cute to observe like fairly middle of the road, moderate liberals who started to turn against this some years back and be like, we just need to have a, a logical, rational dialogue about this. I'm setting up a debate at, by this, this uh, free speech institution. And like, we're going to invite like liberal, we're, we're going to invite like far leftists to debate with moderate liberals about what racism is or what this means. And we're going to look at it really rationally because they had this belief that if we just, if we can just find the time and place to talk about this rationally, that it'll solve all our problems. And I think that has its place. Like, I'm not saying it's good that we have moderate people who are like, we just need to use the Socratic method to, to talk about this topic and like deduce what's actually logical and what's the data. That was such a cute little movement there for a minute. Started around like the, the mid 2010s. Started to see that in like 2014, 2015, I think you first started to see that. And then it really escalated under Trumpsfeld, where there were a lot of these people who were like, yeah, I don't, I don't really see eye to eye with current progressives, but we need to have a very rational and polite discourse about it. And, and that's what some of these intellectual dark web guys were trying to do. The guys who are associated with the intellectual dark web. And I use that as a catch-all term, not just the guys who they link to it like not just rogan brett weinstein ben shapiro sam harris like not just them but like anybody who was like that like any of those people who were like semi quasi-academic who were who were kind of like institutional people 
people who had, who had been like pre who had previously been part of institutions and public platforms who were like, well, we need to actually start looking at the facts of this and like have a, an an honest and open discourse with the current progressives. And like that didn't work. It didn't work at all. I think where it's good is I think that gave a certain type of person some relief. Like I think there's a certain type of person like those guys who considered themselves liberal and were so put off by things that it's nice they had a little haven where they could go listen to a former professor talk about how these current accusations of racism are completely delusional. You know, like it, that gives them some relief, but it wasn't an effective strategy as far as tackling this stuff. And you've seen a lot of those guys veer one way or the other. Like Sam Harris, who I've never been a fan of. I don't have a problem with him. He makes points I like. I, I just don't really like his general approach to anything. <laughs> he has made, he has said some things I like though. I, I, he's not a bad guy. He's boring, very boring. Let's talk about meditation scientifically. Pfft. Let's talk about meditation scientifically. You point the double-barreled shotgun to the back of my head, and you pull each trigger at the same time. But Sam Harris, you know, he's a good example. Where like he leaned fucking hard into Joe Obama, Ben Biden. He kind of set himself apart from the 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 intellectual dark web by being super Trump derangement. Like he he and uh, Bill Maher, and I love Bill Maher. I'm I'll always be a Bill Maher fan. But both those guys kind of set themselves apart a little bit because like they had serious Trump derangement. Not saying they shouldn't like the guy. I think Bill Maher, out of anybody in the world, has more right to dislike Donald Trumpsfeld than anybody. I mean, Trumpsfeld literally tried to sue Bill Maher for comparing him to an orangutan. But it doesn't change the fact that he had serious Trump derangement. Those guys leaned really hard into that. Now they're now both of those guys though are kind of like now that Trumpsfeld's out of office, both those guys can go back to complaining about progressivism. Whereas like other people like Rogan, like he's obviously tested the waters more with. He's he's. I, I mean, I have nothing but the the highest respect for him. As someone who's not really a fan of him. Like, even though I've listened to his show, I used to listen to it a lot, 2015, 2016, around there. And I've, I've, I've still, I still listen to him sometimes. You know, if it's somebody I think I like or whatever, it'll, it'll be interesting. It, he's become like the, it's like water cooler talk or something. It's like, you know that tons of people are listening to his show. And I think it's sometimes good to connect to that. To be like, this is something that a lot of people are taking in. And what I've realized about him as someone who, who would like watch his show back in the day and take like relatively little influence. Like sometimes like I think some of the, the health talk. No, I mean, I, I should I should backtrack on that. Like I would say that show was really helpful for me in terms of like getting into my physical routine. Like I didn't do what he does or what people on his show do, but them talking about like muscle and nutrition and things. I took little pieces of that and I still use it today. I think some of those guests that he had on too, like Jordan Peterson and stuff like that. I mean, I, I learned stuff from that. You know, I, I have to say I learned stuff from that. So I wouldn't say that I've been unaffected by it. But that I, there are certain sort of people though, like if they watch Joe Rogan, they do absorb a lot of the, the opinions and ideas. People do that. But he's a guy who's so middle of the road in the grand scheme of things that it's like, that's a good thing. If a lot of really normal people are watching Joe Rogan, and they're absorbing a little bit of that. 
his outlook and things. Like, that's only a good thing. And aside from a couple things here or there, like, I think he's been nothing but a positive force. And given all the pressure on him and knowing that he has the audience he has, he stayed incredibly grounded. He has very much implied that he prefers the right side of things right now than the left. Like, even though he his views are very liberal, he's a good example of that liberal guy who got left behind. And he's very tactful about it. Like, I think he, you can tell that he would like to say more. Like, I watched his show after the election, the last election, and he was drunk, and there was a part where they announced that Donald Trumpsfeld had won Texas where he had just moved and he cheered. And, you know, he, he kind of let the curtain fall right there. But I don't think that he's, he's, he's not wholeheartedly into that. He's just kind of, he's one of those guys who's kind of been left behind. And as a result, he leans that way now. Not completely, but he leans that way. Ben Shapiro was. All, I'm not just gonna. I'm just gonna go down the list of all the IDW people. But now Ben Shapiro, I, I've never paid that close of attention to him. I gave him a chance to see what he was like, but I mean, I, there's no way I can get into a guy like that. No way, that fucking guy. Um, uh, but like with him, it's like he's always been Orthodox Jewish, right? He's always been right wing, so he hasn't really changed. He hasn't. He hasn't changed at all. But anyway, just like, like the point is, it's like those guys have either kind of like, I don't know, that whole thing kind of fell apart, but the whole idea behind it, the whole behind, the whole idea behind that little push that like, oh, there's this new group of guys who do podcasts and they talk about things rationally and honestly, and there's no censorship. That's a good thing, but it didn't really do anything. I don't think it really did much. Maybe Joe Rogan's an exception. Because, you know, he does have such a wide audience. And I think he does make people comfortable with the idea that you don't have to go along with everything. As stupid as that sounds, I think it's true. I think there are some really normal people who intuitively don't like what's going on or have questions about it. And I think they feel a certain relief that there's this guy, Joe Rogan, who's mainly into like weed and, and combat sports. He, he's apparently a comedian, you know. <laughs> uh, and there's people who are like, oh, this guy's kind of like, <clears throat> kind of like a really successful everyman and a bro who's intelligent enough to have conversations, but he's also kind of an idiot. And I can just listen to him, and I know that for the most part, like most views are welcome. I think that gives people some relief, but I think that's kind of most of what it is. Like, I don't think that any clarity has come from the intellectual dark web and their attempt to th talk about things rationally. And I think even those people have learned that there is no rational discourse. It, it really is just shooting arrows at each other. It really is just shooting arrows. So... I've seen this with some of these public figures where people who used to be like, we just need to talk rationally like mature adults about these complicated issues are now just like, you're a fucking groomer. Like James Lindsay's a good example because he's definitely part of that intellectual dark web thing. Like he wasn't one of the guys who was named as one of them, but he's absolutely part of that. A former academic or an academic who made a name for himself by dissecting and 
protesting modern progressivism. And he used to be a little more middle of the road. Like he used to be more like, oh, I just, I'm apolitical and I'm just going to discuss what I'm seeing. I'm going to tell you where this philosophy comes from, all that. And what I'm aware of from him in the last couple of years, I've never followed him closely, but like he's just complete, like he voted for Trumpsfeld and declared it. I think some of those guys privately, quietly voted for Trumpsfeld. He voted for Trumpsfeld. Now he's like gung ho. He's screaming, you know, ad hominem at people. This guy who was like so focused on rational discussion, I think he saw how fruitless it was. I think he was like, oh shit, like talking about this very calmly and intelligently, right or wrong, talking about it calmly or intelligently went nowhere and things are worse. I'm just going to hurl insults at people. I think he's he's gone in that direction because it makes you do that. Like if you feel like if you've ever been in a personal one-on-one fight with somebody and you realize that like a, a like rationally breaking down the source of the argument isn't going to work and that other person is now just invested in trying to upset you to make you as upset as they are, it's very attractive just to go, okay, so we're not going to talk about this. Let's just hurl insults at each other until one of us overpowers the other or quits. When my philosophy for that, for like one-on-one arguments, is the same way it is for politics, where I want to make my point. I want to make sure that I make my point just so that I do it for myself. Even if nobody's going to listen, I want to make my point. But as soon as I realize that there's nothing, it's not going to go, that's not going to grow. That's not going to bloom into anything else. I'm out. I'm not going to fight with you. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just done. Once I've made my point, if I realize that there's no more I can do, it's not always that easy. I've said things I don't want to say, but still, I I try to take that approach where it's like, okay, I'm just going to step away from this. I don't need to get the last word. Same thing with politics. It's my attitude. It's like, I could spend all day criticizing this stuff, and sometimes I do. Obviously, if you listen to this show, you know I do. But my general approach is not to get sucked in, not to be emotional, not to be distracted by it. Just don't want to be distracted by it. I'd rather disengage. I'd rather not play that game. But it's been interesting to see people come to terms with that reality. You know, seeing public figures as well as personal, like talking to friends about this stuff. You know, it's, it's really quite bizarre, like seeing it, you know, actually like seeing people have to come to terms with the fact that like, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this the way I want to. And how some people are like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to start launching arrows. Whereas other people are like, I'm just going to walk away. And so what we have now, you know, because I don't really listen to music. Like I, I have podcasts on a lot. A lot of them I'm not even that interested in. Some of them I am for whatever reason. It's, just, it's a way of kind of keeping tabs, like seeing, seeing what people are saying, seeing what people are seeing. And one thing I have noticed, though, is it's like people are very walled off. It's, it's gotten very boring because... It's not that people of different opinions were debating before, but when people talked about this stuff, this stuff, they were operating as if that was possible. 
So now what it is, is it's just complaining about the shit that you think your audience doesn't like. She's like, oh, did you hear about this? It sucks. I'm guilty of that, I'm sure. Oh, did you hear about what they did today? Oh, you hear about what they're upset about now? Because, I mean, I'll listen to shows that are... You know, and it's become part of the marketing. There's a lot of shows, and they're, they're not grifting. People throw that fucking word around. You should be... I mean, like... I'm not going to come up with the execution method, but, like... I think you should be... You know... <laughs> I gotta be careful what I say here. Uh, I, I I don't believe in violence, but if you throw the the term grifter around, no matter who you are or what you believe, like you know, I think you're gonna need to be hung by your thumbs for longer than uh, is physically comfortable. I think somebody needs to hang you by your thumbs for longer than is physically comfortable. If you throw a grifter around, but no, like some of these, they're not even grifters. It's just that like they know that their audience wants to hear people complain about certain things. And it goes both ways. It goes every way. But it's made for uninteresting content because it's like there's there's not even an attempt to break out of that. It's just this mold that people are in now. And it's good that people complain. I mean, there's a lot to complain about. And I think people need to complain about this stuff. I think, I think people... There's a lot of people out there who have no outlet who need to hear somebody say some of the things they're feeling so they don't feel crazy because this world's making us crazy and it feels crazier and crazier, but they need to hear people kind of vent and complain about this stuff. There's it's therapeutic, but it doesn't make for interesting thought. It doesn't make for like, like if I'm going to talk about this stuff, like I'm going to try to like hit it from some other angles. Not that I hit it from the right angles, hit it. I'm just going to try to do that or it's, it's, it's what I do. It's just what this show is. But a lot of it's just like, did you hear about this? Oh, can you believe they're doing this now? Oh, did you hear that so-and-so, like, he got uh, removed from the cast of blah, 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 because it came out that 10 years ago he said blah, blah, blah. Like, sometimes it, it does provoke interesting thought. But for the most part, it's just like, oh, can you believe this now? Huh? And it's, just, it's not very interesting. And, and people have also now had years with podcasting being popular, with people being on a schedule – They've said the same thing over and over again. They've had the same conversations over and over again. We've had a chance to watch the same guests appear on the same podcasts and act like they're having the same conversation for the first time over and over again. I repeat myself all the time. So, you know, I'm not saying I, I have anything special going on, but I've just noticed that like, yeah, we, we've entered that time. We're like, it doesn't seem like there's anything new to grab a hold of. And there was a lot of initial momentum in podcasting and blogging and just a lot of other things where it was like, oh, you're going to hear people talk in a way that they've never talked before. Not offensive, not like, not in, not, not like you're going to hear, you're going to hear them talk like uncensored, a little bit of that. Definitely a little bit of that because podcasting was obviously was, and to some degree still is way more uncensored than any TV or anything we ever watched. But part of the, the interest in it was like, oh, these guys are talking about stuff in a way that nobody else talks about. And a lot of that stuff, too, it got popular. Like This is another example of a phrase that came and went, and it was very effective at, at the time, but like social justice warrior. The number of YouTube shows and podcasts and just internet personas that became popular you know, in the last decade just because they rally against social justice warriors – which at that time were just kind of a fringe college-aged group. 
who are now like everybody, like, you know, huge groups of people could be called that now. Huge pe groups of people look and talk like that now. But that was a big one. Like, if you were like a young man with a YouTube account, you could like make a, make videos. You're like, I put social justice warriors in their place. There was a lot of currency to that. You could do a lot with that. You could, if you were, if you were pushing back against the social justice warriors, you could do a lot with that and get a big audience. But you can't do that forever. Even though this stuff is still going on and, and it's worse than ever, like you, just, you can't just talk about that forever. But you know, before I close out, I do want to say like, that, like I didn't even think of that term earlier. I mean, it's telling that like that term was everywhere for a few years. By the mid two thousand tens, there there were. It was all like SJW, social justice warriors. And that one was really effective because it took a term that they themselves were using. Like these people who were like, I'm a social justice activist. Like it took that sort of terminology and said, oh, look at you, you little social justice warrior. You're fighting for the good cause. And at that time, it didn't seem like it was going to become as mainstream as it did to a lot of people. But it took a term they used, social justice, and it was it turned it upside down on them. It inverted it on them and made fun of them for saying that. It made fun of them for calling them social justice warriors. And that had a long life, you know, like that was effective for a long time to be like, look at the SJWs. And then that kind of mutated into wokeness. Like that was probably like a, uh, that's the missing link between political correctness and wokeness is social justice warrior. Like what people used to say, like, oh, God, I don't want to go to Berkeley and uh, there's going to be all these – everyone's so politically correct in San Francisco Bay, you know. People used to say that and then that became like, oh, God, I don't want to go to Berkeley. There's all these fucking social justice warriors are going to protest me. And then that mutated into like, oh, these woke types are there. You know, so it's, this all kind of meant the same thing. And we can see we're like calling them – calling it politically correct had a long shelf life. That lasted for a long time. In the pre-internet days, that lasted for decades. Like you could you could criticize political correctness for decades and you didn't seem outdated and people knew what you were talking about and it was effective. And everyone said, oh yeah, that PC, PC culture, huh? But, you know, that eventually faded and then like people started talking about social justice and then people made fun of social justice warriors, and that was effective for a while. But things have escalated, and things move so quickly now that it's like, that's gone. Like, if you call someone a social justice warrior pejoratively now, you look like an idiot. You look, I mean, old people never even absorbed that one. Like, I was talking about how someone's 85-year-old Fox News grandpa today watches Tucker Carlson and doesn't get online, but knows what wokeness is and talks about, oh, God, these woke people. You know, they can talk about that because that's become mainstream, too, to talk that way. But that 85-year-old grandpa, like, he never heard of social justice warriors. That, that grew into something else. And if you say that now, you just seem out, outdated and out of touch. And where the left's been effective, I should have mentioned this earlier, is, you know, a lot of, you know, progressivism when I was coming up, when I was younger, was aimed at those evangelicals. 
And a lot of people agreed. A lot of really normal people agreed. Even conservatives. Some conservatives were like, yeah, those religious fanatics are a bit much, aren't they? And that was an effective target 20 years ago to be like, oh, man, these George Bushel voting evangelicals are ruining the country. And they were doing a lot of bullshit. They were wielding a lot of power over the culture. They were influencing a lot of things in a negative way. They were very pro-censorship. And that would no longer be effective today. Like, even though there's a lot of animosity toward evangelicals, you know, with, especially when, it, mainly when abortion comes up, the evangelicals don't seem to be on people's mind. Like, Christians don't seem to be on people's mind until abortion comes up. Till abortion comes up. Most of the animosity toward the enemy, toward the conservative enemy, is not so much at the evangelicals, it's more against just the white American, every people, every people. I'm already talking that way. No, but it's, it's mainly, I was going to say man, but it's like, you can see where we know like, like the attitude toward the white male is the, the top priority. You humiliate white male actors in commercials. You constantly talk about undoing the white patriarchy but to see that then start to get applied to white women like the karen thing was very much directed at a fairly normal type of mom white mom a white mom and even though some of them are that bitchy ask for the manager type or call the cops on you type it was it was directed at more than that it was directed at, at, the, at the image of that type of person, like not just the actions. It was, it was, it was very much directed at middle-aged white women. And they don't tend to target evangelicals specifically. Like Obama bin Biden's speech, talking about extremists, didn't mention religion or Christians or evangelical extremists because that doesn't really describe the enemy anymore. It's a far more broad movement. Like, mega-Republicans is a more effective way of saying it. Like, if you want to target a very specific group using their own identity, you would target mega. And that's been effective for them. Like, they have kind of shifted their sights. If all progressives did is complain about repressive evangelicals, it wouldn't really do much. It did something 20 years ago, but it wouldn't, wouldn't really do as much today because they only rear their heads with regard to very specific issues. And most of the issues that are being debated today apply to a far broader audience. Like if you, if you were a progressive today who wanted to propagate your politics to propagate your political agenda, you wouldn't target Christian evangelicals. Like, that would be like a someone on the right targeting hippies. Because that's what people used to say. Like, when I was growing up, conservative people, they would paint hippie with a broad brush. But they were really talking about hippies because, like, the dominant voices on the far left and in progressivism in the 90s and early 2000s could be called hippies. And be like, oh, these freaking hippies. But today, that would be really ineffective. While it includes hippies, the things right-wing people complain about include hippies. 
to, to focus entirely on hippies just wouldn't do the job because that doesn't describe most of the people they're dealing with. Just like most of the people the far left is dealing with aren't evangelicals. The, the parameters of what makes someone your enemy are way wider. And because of that, you have people who are constantly trying to figure out where the line is drawn. And it's changing, and that, that's why it's a job that's never done. Because liberal and conservative and Democrat and Republican, because all of that apply to such broad groups of people today, you never really know where one begins and the other ends. And you don't even know it about yourself. Like Joe Rogan, you know, he's a good example talking about him, where it's like for as long as I've been aware of him, he's like a proponent of marijuana, psychedelics. He, you know, has some, some very liberal views on a lot of things. He's not, he doesn't look conservative. He's got a ton of tattoos. He's an atheist, or at least an agnostic who loves to question, you know, religion. He's an atheist who loves to question religion. No, he does. That's always been one of his things. Like, he's always been kind of like a self-professed skeptic. Where he's like, yeah, but that doesn't make sense that the bush was just burning on its own. What do you think it really was? Like Joe Rogan's thing has always been like, what do you think the burning bush like actually was? Obviously a bush didn't just start burning. Like, do you think this guy like lit it on fire? And then, you know, he's always been that kind of guy. But it's like the way the, the line, the way that the blurry lines have uh, confused everything is that like people are constantly, if you look at like some of the, the people who follow his show and comment and things, a lot of following Joe Rogan today is like, look, he said this thing that's kind of right wing. Oh, look, he said this other thing that's kind of left wing. Where's Joe Rogan stand? And like people have a hard time placing him. And they're constantly trying to like identify which side of this imaginary line he's on. Which side of the line is Joe Rogan on? It's like, oh, he's on this side. Oh, nobody said this, so he's on that side. Oh, but the line is moving as we speak. So, like, now he's definitely on this side. Oh, but he, but see, but he still he still said this. So, I don't know. I think we need to move him over on this side of the line. It's, it's just insane. But it's how we evaluate things. Like, we spend a lot of our time now, because things are so broad, because things are so general, a lot of what we're doing is like, which side of the line is this on? Which side of the line is he on? Where does this sit? Oh, he said this. Which side of the line did that fall on? Oh, he fired an arrow. Joe Rogan fired, yeah, I think he lit, yeah, he literally fires arrows. He's a hunter. But Joe Rogan fired an arrow. Where did it land? Well, he fired an arrow last week that landed over here. Yeah, but he fired this one and it's on this side of the line today. And then the line keeps moving. And now all the arrows are on that side. Oh, the line kept moving. Now every single arrow he fired is on the right. What does that make him? Yeah, but when he fired it, he was on the left. When he first fired it, the arrow landed on the left. But, you know, it's just insane. And to act like that's what's real. We act like that's the realest thing. But that's that's been a big shift. Like, you know, because we've always caricatured people. And I think caricatures are actually more effective than, I mean, maybe not more effective. I think caricatures are child's play compared to what's been going on now. 
you used to be able to just caricature your enemy. And that's kind of what like the Christian right was and the progressive left was 20, 25 years ago. It was, I'm going to caricature your side by saying you're all hippies with bleeding hearts. I'm going to characterize, I'm going to caricaturize your side by saying you're all fundamentalist Christians who believe that we need to wage war in the Middle East. You knew that that didn't apply to everybody, but like you were attacking a very small subset of people who disagree with you. You were attacking like a caricature. And now though, it's like things, it's not even a caricature. It's a composite. Like instead now, it's like when you attack the enemy, you attack a composite. And because that composite is made up of so many different views and outlooks and types of people, it's very difficult to know what it even is. It's sort of this amorphous blob. And you're in the fog of battle and the people around you, the people who you consider your people, you're just listening to them. They're like, well, actually the amorphous blob, it took on this, sh this shape. But usually they didn't even see it themselves. You just have to take their word for it, which they got from somebody else. Oh, like this dude, I, I ran into this dude in the battlefield and I haven't seen shit because of the fog of war. He said he saw the amorphous shape and it, it was it was shaped like this. And you just have to take that that person's word for it. That's kind of where we're at now. And there's this great redundancy. There's this great repetition. Where it's been a while since anybody's had something to say. And, and we were exhausted. People made so many points and observations and they had so many takes over the last few years. Certainly through the Trumpsfeld era, the Trumpsfeld presidency. But it's, that escalated the last two years. Well, we've really exhausted our ability to say anything new and fresh. Chances are you know what you believe by now. If you're an adult, you know what you believe by now. And what's available to you is to like listen to people who agree with you, which I try to break out of that. I try to take in other things. Some of it's unbearable, but I try to take in other things. And uh, so, so it's like you just, uh, your, your views are pretty set. You have an idea of where you sit in all of this, some idea. And you just listen to people who basically agree with you. And you no longer caricature your enemies as like, oh, they're hippies. Oh, they're, they're just those, you know, stuck up, like Victorian-esque Christians, you know, trying to control my body. You know, it's not even based on that. It's just like this general composite, this amorphous shape, just complaining about this big amorphous shape. And uh, that's about all I got here. I just kind of wish, you know, for me personally, just for my own entertainment, I just wish we would see a sudden turn. Because this just seems like being slowly grinded to death, ground to death. This just feels like a very slow grind for everybody. Just seems like people are being physically and mentally ground up, just very slowly. It does feel like that, you know, death by a thousand cuts. And we were so used to events happening. Like the thing about 2020 and 2021 is it was just rapid fire event after event after event. Drastic stuff to pay attention to and process.
and react to. And now that we've been in this year of just a grind, I think a lot of people are sitting there saying like, where does this branch out? Like, where does a new tunnel appear? We're deep in this cave. We know the tunnels that got us here and we can't go back out them. Where is that new tunnel? You know, and nobody seems to know where it is. It has to be there. Things can't just grind along like this. But there has to be some sort of other tunnel that we can go through. And it might be a bad one. Like, it might be bad. But we're at the point where we'll take anything. There's people out there, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, very few people want civil war. But there are people out there who would be happy for it because it would just mean something different. And that's a scary place to be in. I don't think people realize how precarious this is. When people are looking for a tunnel, any tunnel to get out of, it's like, I'll, at this, because at first people are like, oh, we need to find the right tunnel. There's some tunnel that's going to like, if not get us out of here, take us to some new place, at least make things interesting again. And I think people have given up looking for the right tunnel and they're just kind of like, I'll take any tunnel. Even if it's bad. Because this is just too much of the same. And that, you know, like I said, that's a precarious place to be in socially and politically. Because you have no idea. In the same way we can't project our current views onto people in the future and think they'll understand why we did the things we did. Or appreciate them or value them. They might hate us. We have no idea like what that next thing is and it could it could take us by complete surprise because I think if you were to ask people and they were being honest and their brains haven't been erased, their memory hasn't been erased, they'd tell you that all of this took them by complete surprise. Take